This is Densely Speaking, a podcast about cities, economics, and law. I'm Jeffrey Lin, an economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. With me is Jenny Schutz, fellow at the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Jeff. Also here is Greg Schill, associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law. Hi, Greg. Hey, Jeff. Today on the show, infrastructure. The U.S. spends more than $400 billion a year on infrastructure, yet there's widespread concern about both the perceived decline in the quality of U.S. infrastructure and especially the high cost of providing that infrastructure. To take just, just one example, recent subway expansions in New York City have reportedly cost more than $2 billion per mile, an order of magnitude more compared with some subway expansions in other countries. Our guest today is Leah Brooks, Associate Professor of Public Policy and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Leah has a recent working paper called Infrastructure Costs. It's co-written with Zach Lisko of Yale Law School. In this paper, they try to answer the question, why is infrastructure so expensive through the lens of spending on the interstate highway system? Leah Brooks, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Leah, what was your strategy for getting at the question of infrastructure costs in this paper, and what did you find? Okay, well, when Zach and I started this project, I think we started with this idea that there's this general sense that infrastructure is getting more expensive, that there's some kind of increase over time, and everybody's read some newspaper article about some kind of horrifyingly expensive piece of infrastructure. But, you know, obviously for an economist, that's not really sufficient, right? Like we'd like to have some kind of way of quantifying, is infrastructure really getting more expensive? Or are these anecdotes just sort of one-off things? Or are the anecdotes actually the actual story here? So we started by thinking about something we could measure in a consistent way over time. And that's what led us to interstate highways. It's not that we don't think that maybe airports or railroads or bus rapid transit lanes, any of those, all of those could be getting more expensive too, but they're just a lot harder to measure in a consistent way. So we started with interstate highways because we could measure more or less how much it costs to build a mile of interstate highway each year over the course of the build out of the interstate highway, which is 1956 to 93. So that's where we started. That's part one. Does it really cost us more? to build a mile of interstate than it used to? Answers definitely yes, a whole lot more than it used to, not a little bit a lot more than it used to. Spending in the 80s is almost three times spending per mile in the 60s. And you know that's accounting for inflation. That's not, that's inflation adjusted three times more in real terms to build a mile. That's what's so striking about your paper is that here you're going to focus on something that you know we think of as relatively homogenous and relatively standardized over time, a mile of interstate highway, you document that in adjusting for inflation, a mile of interstate highway cost about $8.5 million in the early 1960s. By the time we got to the mid-1980s, that mile of interstate highway is costing almost three times as much, $25 million. That seems like just a really important fact to kind of bring to this conversation about infrastructure costs. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess when we, when we did this, we said, I feel like the first point is papers. No, it's not in your head. Like those anecdotes in the newspaper, maybe they are extreme outliers, but there really is this general increase in spending on infrastructure per unit over time. And then the second thing we tried to do in the paper is, you know, once we established that there really is an increase, what's driving that increase? And of course, that's the harder part of the question to answer. And we come up with, some things that we can 
definitively, or at least economists never like definitively reject anything, but I would say pretty substantially reject. And then a set of things that seem likely where we, where we have some evidence to suggest that they, they may be driving expenditures. So I think the first two things, just to summarize that we think when talking to both economists and regular people, the first thing people say is, oh, well, costs are going up. Aren't they just building more difficult segments of the interstate later? And we do a bunch of things in the paper to try and show that these results about spending over time persist even when you control for how difficult it is to build a mile. And I want to say that we were helped a lot in talking about this by conversations with Jeff, who gave us a lot of explanations about it from his work on freeway revolts, talking about how at the beginning of the interstate system, the planners really had no idea of the scope of the problems they were going to run into building the interstate and that they didn't have our our framework for thinking about the difficulty of building infrastructure. They didn't try to build what we now think of as the cheapest places first. Let's go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about how are you putting together these estimates and how are we sure that we are comparing apples to apples? That is, how comparable is a mile of interstate highway built in 1960 versus a mile of interstate highway built in 1980? So can you talk a little bit about how you got these estimates? I think... I want to be upfront and say, in my ideal world, what I would have measured would have been each one mile in a segment of the interstate highway, and I would have known how much each individual segment cost and when it started and when it ended. That's not actually what I know. I know when each one mile segment of the, hi- of the interstate highway was completed, and I know for each state how much they spent on new interstate miles in a given year. Now, unfortunately, when you spend the money is not when you build the mile, right? If you finished the mile in 1960, you probably spent money maybe from 55 to 60 building that mile. So there's this time mismatch between the spending and the mileage. But all else equal, if you spend money before you finish miles, you should have declining spending per mile over time because you're front loading the spending and end loading the mile. So that's a problem with the data, but it's a problem with the data that goes in the opposite direction of what we find. Um, right. The spe- if the spending occurs in advance of the completion, you're going to have that factor is going to drive per mile cost of decline over time, which is the opposite of what you find. And the data on highway spending comes from these volumes that the Federal Highway Administration very kindly publishes every year called Highway Statistics. So we some poor thousands of research assistants at Yale types in all these numbers. And Zach did tons of work getting the data to be reflective of just these new interstate miles that were funded by the federal government. So that's sort of on the data front. And what we observe is state and year data, but because of this mismatch between the spending and the mileage opening, we group years into periods of six years to try and deal with this mismatch problem. So that's the, that's the underlying data. What that gives you is a panel database of spending by each state and also a completion of interstate mileage. Yeah. So for each state and six-year period, we observe how much money they spent on interstate miles and how many miles they completed. And from that, we calculate a spending per mile. Can I jump in just and ask, you want to look at the cost per mile because that's a standard unit, but I would imagine that, in fact, they don't often build just one mile segment at a time, right? They're probably building 10 or 20 mile segment that connects a couple of things. Can you talk a little bit about how long it takes to build sort of what we might think of as a, as a reasonable stretch of highway that people can use? Okay, so I have some sad news on this front, which is that the data of this part were not super reliable. There's a period during which 
I can't remember what the cutoff year is, but after some cutoff year, about 80% of the miles we observe have a completion, a start date and a completion date. So we can do something like that. But for most of the earlier years, that data is just missing in the data file. So I thought one of the ways you would see highways become more expensive would be that they take longer to build. But we don't, unfortunately, really have the data to say. Still, I think this is an incredible achievement to have put together these statistics, especially hearing how the data entry happened. <laughs> <laughs> I should also say, this is not in the paper, but I was at a Transportation Research Board event about a year ago in D.C., and a senior Federal Highway Administration official said, yeah, when the new administration came in, they asked us how much do highways high miles cost? And we really were unable to tell them. So they still, we're using is not exactly a cost metric, and they still are unable, apparently, to have any kind of reliable cost metric. Like they know how much money is going out, like they know how much money they send to the states, but they, at least internally, can't tie that spending to specific highway miles. Yeah, this might be a good time to maybe mention the formula for funding the interstate highway system. Yes. Yeah, so the way the interstate spending works is, at least during this period of the build out of the interstate, 56 to 93, is that the federal government pays 90% and states pay 10%. And what's particularly interesting about this setup is if you're a state and you want to build gold-plated highways, I'm not saying anybody did, but suppose you wanted to, there's really no limit on your total ability to spend. There's a limit on your ability to spend in a given year because there's a congressional mandate on the total amount that they send out to states, usually based on the gas tax. And then they divide it among states based on states' estimated cost of completing their interstate system. But there's nothing in the law that limits a state's spending. If you're willing to be slow about it, if you're willing to take 30 years to build your system rather than 10, you can spend, I don't want to say infinite amount of money, but you could, there's no cap. Each state was allocated a certain number of miles of highway to build through the interstate program. And the costs were just what the costs were. Yes. Yes. The miles that they were allocated were given at the beginning. So you want to think about states as having at the beginning a set number of miles that they're going to build. And then given those set number of miles, they build them following this setup the federal government is 90% of the cost. So one way that you might reframe this is states that are doing the construction don't have much of an incentive to contain costs. And the fact that they still don't know how much it costs to build a mile of highway suggests that that's still true, right? We don't even know how much it costs, let alone do you have some sort of an incentive to build it as cheaply as possible. I don't want to say zero incentive because there's some incentive if you want to have the miles quickly and states pay 10%. Especially for, for a state that maybe wants to build some number of miles in a way that, as you talk about in the paper, is, is a lot more costly, like with noise, noise walls and so on. So they may have 50 or 100 miles in or near the core of their big city that they want to be really careful with. And they could do that very slowly over time and get the federal government to pay about 90% of that. Is that Yeah, is that, right? that was true then. I I think Jeff Jeff may know better than me. I don't think the funding formula is now quite as generous to states. I don't think it's ninety ten. I think for maintenance, states pay more, but I don't I don't want to swear to that. I don't know if a state does large 
changes to its existing interstate what the balance is between the state and the federal government. Furthermore, the amount of the gas taxes, as I'm sure you guys all know, has been on the decline. So the pot is shrinking too. I mean, this period 56 to 93, when we're looking at that pot just keeps growing and growing and growing. But one important point there is that we've essentially finished the new build out. The new sections of highway that are built, connecting highways or going through major cities, that's essentially done. And so post-1983, essentially what we do is either widen existing highways or repair and maintain the stuff we have. Yeah, absolutely. So you compile this fantastic database. You're able to document this tripling of real spending per mile of interstate highway. Over a couple decades. You also, I think, interestingly, identify the timing of the increase in this spending per mile metric. And you document a lot of differences across states and the trajectory of spending. Can you talk about that a little bit? Here's what what I take as the sort of big takeaways from that part of the paper. First, this increase in spending happens almost exclusively after 1970. So you don't want to think of this as like a, from 56 to 93, costs are just increasing, increasing, increasing. Now you want to think about this as from 56 to about 1970, costs per mile are actually roughly flat adjusted for inflation. Then after 1970, it's like the line just tilts upward and keeps going straight up. Our data don't, <laughs> there's no plateau in our data. I don't know what happens after 93. Matt Turner and co-authors have a paper on this in the post-93 period for interstate miles, and I don't think they're showing a plateau. So yeah, I mean, we see flat through 70, rise after 1970. And that seems to be driven by increases in income, but increases in income that only matter after 1970. So, so the intuition here is that as you get wealthier, you want more stuff, you know, like you want more clothes, you want a bigger house, you want a nicer car, and you also want a nicer interstate highway. And now, like, what is a nicer interstate highway? A nicer interstate highway could be a interstate highway that has bigger shoulders. It could be an interstate highway that has better line markings, better drainage. It could have better ramps to get on and off. It could have nicer bridges over the freeway, all those things make a nicer interstate. So if you get richer, maybe you want a nicer interstate too. But we don't see income mattering until after 1970 in terms of explaining spending. Rises in income, explaining increases in spending. So after 1970, the increase in spending in a statistical sense is almost entirely explained by increases in income and increases in home value. Now, I view that as primarily a statistical finding. Like this, this is a a correlation. It's not that the income alone is driving what we see, but that it's the mechanism by which some kind of underlying social forces is, is being played out in the expenditure process. So before we move on, okay. I just want to break down the inference here a little bit. So yeah. you're relying on state-to-state -state variation and the evolution of per-mile interstate spending and a bunch of different factors, including how has that state's income evolved over time or how, how have housing prices evolved over time in, the, in those states, right? The finding that you just stated is that states that had the highest spending per mile growth on interstates also had the highest income growth. Is that yes, right? Yeah. That's right. So big changes in income growth predict big changes in spending per mile. Yeah. The variation of the data that you're trying to explain is this state-to-state -state heterogeneity, right? Yeah. And there's a lot of other factors that pop up in people's minds about like, oh, why is infrastructure spending increasing so much? You know, some people might point to, you know, certain legal institutions. Other 
people might point to labor market institutions like unions. Other people might point to like contracting practices or public sector management issues. How I read your previous statement is that in a statistical sense, income or house price growth explains differences across states in interstate spending growth. What factors are you able to rule out besides those in your analysis? Absolutely. So I think the most compelling chart, which is why it's a little sad, this is a podcast, um, but we, <laughs> we have a chart that looks at spending per mile over time and real wages, real construction wages over time, an index of real input prices for construction wages. So um, asphalt, concrete, steel, the things that go into a highway. And what you see is that all those years are relatively flat for the first, I don't know, 56 to about 70. But that after 70, interstate spending heads up. But the other things, the real prices of construction materials and of wages, construction wages, are pretty flat. So there's just no way that the price of labor could be driving the increase in highway spending because the price of construction labor just hasn't gone up. So it could be we're spending, like you could be having more construction workers. Maybe that makes somehow a, a better highway product or maybe fewer dead highway construction workers, right? If you have the guys with the flags at both ends that you see on construction sites, that could make a, a you know a nicer highway product. But the wages themselves, just there's no way in which they could explain the increase in highway spending, nor, nor materials prices. Just, just to clarify, when you say wages, do you mean that like hourly wages that they get paid or the cost of labor, including things like benefits? Because one thing we know that over this time period, things like health care and pension increased as a share of overall compensation. Yes. So both wages and overall compensation. The overall compensation is, a, you, know, like you look at the two lines, it's a little bit higher than wages, but it just sort of fails in comparison to what happens with the overall spending. I found that to be a very interesting and somewhat surprising finding because I think there's an assumption that with the growth of contracting, maybe pulling in one direction and perhaps changes in unionization and pulling in the other direction, that you might see more of a um, heterogeneity in the cost. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So I agree with you. This is not what I did not expect to find such a nothing result there. But I also want to say, like, what we're looking at, we're comparing a national series of construction wages to our highway costs. It's not that we're looking within each individual project, but if labor expenditures are going up, it's probably because of labor's price times quantity. It's probably because of the number of people and not the wages you're paying. What about land acquisition costs? All right. So what we see in the data is that land acquisition costs, if I remember correctly, like in the teens over time, teens in the, is in terms of a share. Over the whole entire period, I think we about 18% of expenditures are for land. This was one of my key suspects when I started. I thought they were going to be paying more for land over time. And it's possible they're paying more for land over time because 18% of a growing number is a growing number. But it's still 18% of a growing number and not, you know, two-thirds of a growing number. So, you know, it might be that they are spending more for land in the later years, but it's unlikely to be the loan future driving this. So one thing you mentioned is that the number of lanes does not seem to play a major role in costs. But the paper also mentions that actual construction costs are a big share. And 
I assume more land is necessary, at least to a degree, the more lanes you have. So what are your thoughts on why that might not be a driving factor, the number of lanes, which on average seems to have increased over the length of the period? Yeah, I don't have any deep thoughts on the number of lanes, to be honest, partially because our data on the number of lanes is, let's say, not ideal. What we measure is the number of lanes that exist on a highway as of 2016. We don't measure the lanes when the highway was built. And I just feel like without knowing that, I'm just really loath to make any kind of definitive statement about what's going on with, with highway lanes. In some ways, if we had done calculations per lane mile, which we couldn't do because of this data problem, that might make highways seem possibly less expensive over time because there's got to be some kind of economies of scale in building, you know, four lanes rather than two lanes. On the other hand, however, those really wide highways are built in urban areas where the costs are just astronomical. Just one question, too, on where the land comes from. Do you have a sense of whether that changes over time? And how often are they using existing rights of way? How often do they have to use eminent domain to take land in order to have a stretch that sort of connects in the right places? You know, how often are they really going out and kind of buying land on the open market in order to build highways? It seems like it's probably not all that frequent. You know, I think Jeff might have a better answer to this question than I do. I don't know. Do you know, Jeff? Yeah, well, I can tell you, I don't know the answer to this either, but I can tell you that in my paper with uh, Jeff Brinkman, what we found was that after, say, the mid-1960s, highways were more likely to be sited along things like rivers or old railroad lines, suggesting that perhaps later highways actually would have benefited from picking routes where land assembly wasn't as much of a difficulty. So if anything, that just kind of like accentuates Leah's result, that even despite the fact that highways are seemingly going through easier land routes, the cost of them is still skyrocketing. So we've talked about a number of these different costs or inputs, but you had a very interesting conclusion or inference that you drew about what might be the most likely mechanism. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So Zach and I developed an explanation, which we call citizen voice. And we describe it as an amalgam of three things that are going on in the 1960s, all of which together contribute to increasing costs. So these are national legislation and to some degree local legislation, changes in judicial doctrine, and the rise of social movements. So on the legislation front, the most obvious, the most well-known of these changes in legislation is the National Environmental Protection Act of 1970. I knew that this act existed, but what I didn't know was that the day after NEPA was passed, I think they were called the National Environmental Law Center Organization, basically an organization of lawyers that their private sector job is to sue under NEPA was formed. NEPA is one of many laws that were passed in, surprisingly, the Nixon era that gave citizens greater right to sue if the government wasn't taking actions under under these laws. And then second, a set of judicial changes, which Greg is probably better equipped to speak to than I am, but changes in judicial doctrine that gave citizens more ability to sue. For example, there's a case that says that if you believe that an agency isn't sort of faithfully following the legislative intent in 
promulgating regulation or taking action relative to that piece of legislation, you as an individual as an individual citizen have a cause of action to sue. So that's the the judicial doctrine piece. So there's you have the ability to sue, and there's more to sue about after you know, passage of all these laws. And then third, people are organized to sue, and organized to sue means that you're already organized in some kind of it could be a civil rights group, it could be a homeowners association, all these groups that appeared in the late 60s, in part as part of the civil rights movement, but not exclusively, to help communities take their intentions to legislators. Just briefly on that for our, our Legal Eagle listeners, that's the Overton Park case, Citizens to Protect Overton Park against Volpe, Supreme Court case from 71, just after NEPA was enacted. So I think we see more broadly, a trend of litigation as a tool of stalling government projects. I would suspect maybe, Leah, to your earlier point, that some of the land acquisition costs may have shown up in this administrative forum. And so that might be one explanation. Yeah, that. that seems totally reasonable because we don't observe within project expenditures. It could certainly be that within a project you know, all those costs of litigation aren't showing up in the cost of buying the land, but they're showing up in the cost of paying all your, you know, your host of 20 lawyers to sue who are, you know, have to deal with all the lawsuits. Now, I want to say up front here, so that people hopefully don't take away that Zach and I are fascists, is that there are, there are both positive and negative effects of this citizen voice, right? One way to look at it is here are populations whose voices were not being heard in this process, that there were, you know, an economic speak, that there were externalities that the government wasn't taking account of. The government was taking these actions, building interstates, causing harm, not fully accounting for the harm it was causing to all parties, and that these laws give people the right to force the government to take those externalities into account, to force the government to take those costs to individuals into account when making decisions. And I think that's the best possible spin of what's happening with Citizen Voice. You know? right. The other possible spin is that anybody can sue for anything, not just the sort of social costs, which we think the government should be accounting for, but also private costs. So, you know, it's I have some personal distaste for the highway that I just I don't I just don't like it. I, I don't think blue is a nice color, and I don't like blue near my house. So I'm going to sue the government because I don't like blue, and that raises costs. But those probably aren't costs that we want the government to internalize. Yeah. So following up a little bit on kind of who's actually taking advantage of these new channels to to protest or to sue to stop things, the things that you're talking about, I think, are, are national changes, right? So NEPA is a federal law. A Supreme Court case would have national applicability. But you see a lot of variance across states in the change in prices. So, you know, one question is, can you talk to sort of, if these are national changes, why do they show up differently in different states? And then beyond that, do we think that these sort of mechanisms for voice get taken advantage of equally by everyone in the population? Or is there reason to think that certain kinds of citizens have more voice or are more prone to lift their voice? To me, it's difficult to have a totally benign interpretation of this sort of citizen voice change when we see that changes in income are so correlated with changes in, in highway costs. If this is merely a case of letting citizens internalize costs to the government, I don't know why we would see a correlation with income. But we do. We see this very strong correlation of income and increased costs. And that's the extent to which we can look across state. The states that have bigger changes in income then see bigger changes 
I think Jenny's question really gets at an important issue of equity and how these reforms played out in the 60s and 70s. Again, I'll reference my work with Jeff Brinkman on this. What we found was that in 1955, just prior to the passage of the Interstate Highway Act, the preliminary plans for routing of highways generally were neutral with respect to race and income. These were the product of a couple of highway engineers with crayons or markers and maps trying to connect up downtowns with the interstate highway system. Only later, towards the late 60s and, and onwards, do you see highways being built predominantly in whiter neighborhoods, neighborhoods with higher educational attainment. And I think it really does suggest that there was a significant disparity in the ability of different communities to take advantage of some of these citizen voice reforms that were happening. I will say I was really struck yesterday, a couple of days ago in the Washington Post, there was a story about how changes in NEPA might harm poor and minority neighborhoods. And I mean, that was the headline of the story. Trump administration pursuing changes to NEPA, two pieces of legislation for voices in poor and minority neighborhoods. And I think this is a future research project, but it's not obvious to me that the greatest gainers from NEPA were poor and minority neighborhoods. I mean, I don't know. It's an open question. Maybe in percentage terms, they gained the most. I don't know if you could think of a percentage welfare change, but in a, but in sort of level changes and who's able to divert the most dollars, it's hard to imagine that, that those poor minority neighborhoods were the biggest gainers. Another feature of doing highway policy in this fashion is to make it kind of non-transparent and apolitical in the sense of being nonpartisan, at least on the surface, right? We can expect the parties might have different opinions about routing of, of a given highway, but generally speaking, it, it pushes the decisions from the realm, certainly from the legislative realm, to litigation and to an extent administrative policy. In a counterfactual, and here I guess I'm, I'm asking you to step into a, a, a different realm, but in some counterfactual world where there is less citizen voice, let's say. What inferences might we draw about the way these decisions would be contested? First, I want to say, I think your point about making the decisions less transparent is absolutely true. Because the, what the legislature decides is no longer the final word, right? The legislature sort of comes out with a first plan, and then then there's all this activism, people sue, with a, it's modified. And, you know, maybe it may end up being quite different than what the legislature had actually intended. I think that's that's absolutely right. I think a world with less citizen voice honestly looks more like Europe. You make a decision about a project and the project is just much more likely to go forward as planned. This is something I just did not understand when I started to think about infrastructure. I I just thought, how could it be that Europe could spend less infrastructure than we do. They have so much higher wages. I think of them as having probably higher environmental standards than we do. And I think those are both true. And it still costs them less, right? It's because of all these, I suspect because of all these expenditures that are exactly, as you said, untransparent. So what's different about Europe? Do they not have a legal system that's set up for people to protest stuff? Or do they do more things through the legislature and not through the executive agencies? Okay, is there maybe, some sort of maybe Greg thing? wants to speak after me, but here's my thought about what's <laughs> different. I think, first, that there's a lot less local discretion. It's certainly, I know that it's true in Canada. 
So I'll give you a different example, but in the U.S., each individual jurisdiction has sovereignty over its land use, choices about, about land use. In Canada, at least in the province of Ontario, if you don't like what your jurisdiction has said about land use, you can, you can appeal it to the Ontario Municipal Board. And they have the final decision-making powers about all land use within the province of Ontario. So that means that there's some kind of quasi-political body that is making choices with a view to Ontario as a whole rather than my particular city. And I think that type of structure is much more prevalent in Europe. I think much stronger national powers relative to local powers. So I think that's at least my limited understanding of why things are cheaper. That sounds persuasive to me. It's a little out of my area, so I don't want to... I don't want to get in over my head, but in addition to the kind of federalism angle that you're alluding to and the overlapping layers of authority, even within a given state, for example, there's also the common law aspect, which in common law jurisdictions generally in the U.S. in particular, there's just a lot more litigation. And in the U.S., there are a number of statutes that provide incentives in my view, in many cases, appropriate incentives to encourage litigation to vindicate, for example, uh, civil rights or environmental rights. Those, as you kind of suggest, those can be employed by some communities to greater effect than others. And just in general, that's probably appropriate to think of as an externality of the highway construction process, at least in a sense. But you know, one thing that caught my eye in the paper was there was a bit of a discussion of common law. So one explanation you often hear about the growth of costs in the U.S. is that it is a function in part of our common law system. Did you see evidence of that in your research? I think what's tricky about common law as an explanation for increasing costs is that the U.S. is a common law country in 1956. It's a common law country in 1993. So common law alone just cannot, like it just, it can't. Something that doesn't change can't explain something that changes. I think that's sort of bottom line. Now, that's not to say that things that have changed over time might not interact in a particular way with our common law system. So, you know, we've discussed the rise of NEPA and other legislation passed in the 70s. We've discussed the changes in judicial doctrine, and all those certainly interact with the common law system to elongate projects and make them more expensive. To go back to sort of a point we were talking about earlier, and you're looking at differences across states, NEPA is a federal law, but the 1970s, there were also state movements to pass uh, laws, and obviously California is one of the big examples. To what extent did you look at sort of the, the rise of state laws that maybe, uh, I think NEPA forms a baseline so states can pass more strict laws, but to what extent are sort of state laws piling on this? So we tried to look at this empirically, but we didn't get very far. There are, I think, four or five states that have what we call like strict state environmental protection acts, those that go above and beyond what's required by NEPA. And we just didn't find anything statistically significant when we looked, which is, you know, I would say not to say that they aren't important, just that there are few of them. This might be a good opportunity to talk a little bit about what evidence you found in terms of supporting your citizen voice hypothesis in terms of both the sort of like speech and then like in terms of what are we buying with all of this money? Where's that money going? I think we have three things that that we tie together under the citizen voice setting. So first, the one I've already mentioned, which is that income matters, but it matters only after 1970. That's so income matters as it explains spending. So that's consistent with the with the timing of citizen voice. 
Then second, after 1970, we see a lot more construction of things that should make highways more expensive. So I'll just talk about two because I think they're pretty intuitive. One of them is noise walls. So there's walls that go along the highway to keep out the highway noise from your house. And I got to say, if I lived near a highway, I'd really want a highway to have a noise wall. Now, as Jeff told us at the beginning, in the 50s and 60s, an interstate mile cost about $8.5 million in 2016 dollars. And a noise wall, according to one estimate we found, cost about $4 million per mile to build. So noise walls are really, really expensive. I mean, but I got to say, if I'm living near a highway, I also would like a noise wall. So if you're living near a highway, a noise wall is a pretty significant mitigation of an externality. All right, so noise walls. A second way to measure potentially more expensive highway construction is roads that are wigglier. So, you know, you can go from point A to point B in a straight line. You can go from point A to point B in a arc, rather, or, you know, an S, whatever kind of shape you feel like. And maybe you would prefer to build a not straight line because you want to go around protected habitat or a historic house, you know, something that you want to protect for whatever reason. So we see a pretty substantial increase in wiggliness of highway segments that are built. Part of what we're saying is if citizens are telling legislators and telling the courts that we care about these things, we should be seeing this show up in how legislators respond. So what we did was we looked at what Congress people said on the floor of Congress for all Congresses during this period. So from 56 to 93, thanks to these guys at Stanford who had already digitized all of these data. So it was, I don't want to say it was easy, but it wasn't excruciating. So what we did was we looked at all congressional speeches from Congresses from 1956 to 93, and we looked for the word interstate, but not the phrase interstate commerce. Okay, so interstate like interstate. And then we look a hundred words in each direction for the word environment. Are Congress people talking about the environment in conjunction with talking about the interstate? Basically, in the fifties, nobody mentions, so there's a zero mention of the word environment near the word interstate. So we divide, we're looking at the number of times per discussion that the, the word interstate appears. And basically it does not appear at all at the beginning. And then in this lead up to NEPA, the passage of NEPA in, in, set in 69, late 69, um, there's an increase in the use of the word environment near the word interstate. And okay, I expected that. But I think what surprised me about doing this was that basically, that's not the end of the increase. And basically, that use of environment near the word interstate goes up and down, but stays elevated after the passage of NEPA. So I view that as something fundamental having changed about how congressmen view their role in making choices about the interstate. Right. It's consistent with Congress people being a lot more concerned. Yeah. And, you know, that has not decreased. Yeah. So, you know, we go out to 2005 and we just, like, on average, there's this increase after 70 that just stays persistent. Right. In terms of like the buying more stuff from a highway, I really loved the case study of the construction of Interstate 696 outside of Detroit. You document that. There were three legs. The first completed in 64 at a cost of 13 million per mile. I think this is all constant dollars. The second completed in 1979 at a cost of 48 million dollars per mile. And then the final one completed in 1989 at a cost of 86 million dollars per mile. And there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the contentiousness of this final segment, including like impacting a historically Jewish neighborhood and coming to a community agreement and the final agreement requiring the depression of the highway along its length, 
noise walls along the segment, and a rabbi, which I love that detail. And I love what you wrote in the paper. Apart from the rabbi, these features are shown in appendix figure <laughs> A7. So I want to say one of the things I like most about this story is Mitt Romney's father, when he was governor of Michigan, basically locked the people who were arguing about this freeway into a room and told them they could not come out until they had made the decision about the freeway. He was just so intensely frustrated, which actually seems like not a terrible way to force people to make a decision. That highway was just astoundingly expensive. And I think it really shows the trade-off because depressed highways are, from an urban perspective, so much better than an above ground. Like there's there's not even a comparison, right? Like with the depressed highway, you could potentially have an urban fabric. On grade highway, you just you can't. You've made this enormous cut through a metro area. So, you know, maybe of any of these features, depressed highways, if you cap it and build, you know, build something on top of it, have some, you know, you could you could plausibly make some kind of story that the benefits might outweigh the costs. I mean, I know people do. Yeah. This, again, loops back to the question of we could do this if it was less expensive. And I think I did this sort of look around at recent highway capping projects that have occurred in various cities, and they range from about $300 million to $800 million per mile. So with that kind of cost structure, I mean, you know, you have to work really hard to, to achieve that benefits. But you might be able to. That's something that Jeff and I tried to do in our paper. It turns out in dense places, in, in dense urban neighborhoods, you can actually imagine a world where there are net social benefits to those kinds of interventions, even at that cost level. Yeah, there's a section of the interstate in D.C. that's getting capped near Georgetown Law School. And they're building multi-story office towers on top of it. So I think that's a place where you could possibly recoup the benefits. I tend to wonder whether that incorporates the environmental arm and all the PM 2.5 and PM 10 and so on. But unquestionably, that would be preferable. I love this example for two reasons. First, I'm a native Michigander. I grew up in Ann Arbor about 45 minutes away from where this happened. And and then second, you kind of see the arc of what you're talking about in the paper in the contrast between the earlier Detroit highways in the city of Detroit and then contrast between that and this highway. So, so many of the highways that were built in Detroit just utterly gutted the city. So here I'm thinking about 75, 96, 94, and so on. I was born considerably after many of those, or maybe even all of them were, were put in. So I may have some of the sequencing a little bit off, but I've seen some of the overhead photos that show just the decimation of the city beginning in the early 50s and continuing into the 70s and 80s. And then you have this segment, right, where kind of no expense, for at least the third leg, no expense was spared. And so there's a much better outcome. I thought that was a, a nice illustration of what you talk about in the paper. One way to think about this a little bit differently, so we're talking about how expensive it is to build highways, right? So we, we spend a lot of money for what we get. There are pretty clear examples of places where I think in retrospect, the highways were built in a way that was really damaging to cities and to neighborhoods and particularly to communities that didn't have enough voice to stop things or to have things done well. So we sort of spent a lot of money, built some infrastructure that's useful, but also done some real damage in the process. And now we're kind of in a situation where often people just don't want to want to undertake new infrastructure projects, either because it's so expensive or because we see how badly some of these have turned out. 
you know, have we sort of gotten ourselves to a point where we are no longer willing to undertake infrastructure projects that would actually have very large social benefits because of our past history, right? So we continue to build highways and expand highways and people drive more and more, even though we know we're dealing with climate change. When we build mass transit systems now, we're more likely to build above ground light rail, which has some of the same problems as an elevated highway, right, compared to a subway. We sort of don't want to do the really expensive projects anymore, even if it might have a really big long-term benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think the costs of building in the U.S. are so high now that I don't know if even a subway built at European cost, I think, could have a like a positive net benefit, right? I don't know if a subway built at American cost can. I mean, maybe, maybe. You know, you might have to have very long-term projection. So yeah, I mean, does it do our high cost to your projects? Yeah, I think absolutely. And, you know, projects that at lower costs would be socially valuable, absolutely. One interesting dimension to that is that the virtue and the vice, I guess, of the highway program that you're studying here is that it's overwhelmingly federally funded. And the federal government, of course, has far fewer budget constraints. Many transit projects are substantially federally funded, but to a lesser degree, and then operating expenses afterwards are significantly devolved to the state or the or the city or the agency, as opposed to D.C. So to the extent this is discouraging worthwhile federal transit projects or interstate ones like high-speed rail, for example, is it fair to say that maybe that effect is felt even more strongly for projects that don't benefit as much from federal backing. Certainly seems plausible. I think another thing that deters investment above and beyond the absolute cost is the uncertainty. We don't highlight that particularly much in this paper. We don't have great evidence for it. But my suspicion is that not only has the cost gone up, but the variance around the initial estimate to the end of the project has also increased. The risk of lawsuits and the risk of the lawsuit outcomes is very idiosyncratic. So you as a politician have to be thinking, well, I'm going to pay, go use a planner. Like, I think this is going to be X, but it could well be 3X. So is a 3X project worth it? Which is actually not that different than what's going on with sort of big housing projects or big, you know, commercial real estate projects. The variance of in cost and length of time to complete it has gone up over time. In that case, it tends to be borne by the private sector developer and then by the eventual consumers of the property. But nonetheless, there's sort of this enormous element of uncertainty and risk involved that probably is deterring some marginal projects. Oh, I totally agree. I think it's the same citizen voice. It's almost all of these same mechanisms at play. Citizen voice weaponized by the kind of U.S. litigation system, which I think is... It's an unusual, unorthodox way to do policy, right? <laughs> by Policy by, by litigation. You, you do the first draft in the legislature, and then just about everything else gets delegated effectively to private litigants and courts. Yes. I mean, I would say, at least not in the infrastructure setup, but in the private sector setup with, with real estate development, I do think that the uncertainty about timelines is just incredibly discouraging to investment. Leah, what are the biggest remaining gaps in our knowledge about infrastructure provision in the U.S.? What would be most useful for us to understand? Okay, so on the cost side, which is what, what I'm thinking about, I think one of the huge gaps in my paper with Zach is what are they actually spending this money on? We, we're telling you about the total, but we have 
we just don't have anything to say with actual dollars about what states are spending, you know, within these different projects. And I think that is an enormous hole in our knowledge to understanding what's driving these costs. I think the other topic that I think is of extreme policy import, which we just don't understand very well, is the relationship between litigation and costs. How costly is litigation? You know, every commercial developer is going to tell you that litigation is insanely costly, but I don't think we have a great direct measure of the cost of litigation or the cost of litigation relative to other regulation or the cost of legislation. And I think to me, that's like at the very top of understanding this increase in costs. Thank you, Leah. Our guest today was Leah Brooks, Associate Professor at George Washington University. So now is the time in our show where we do our appendices. So these are just going to be little recommendations from each of us of interest to people interested in cities. And so let's start with Jenny. What's your appendix this week? There was a piece recently in the New York Times in the opinion section by Farhad Manju talking about a vision of a Manhattan without cars. This got a lot of coverage. People sort of enjoyed looking at all of the pictures. I think there were there were two things that are really important even for those of us who think about cities and transportation and infrastructure issues uh, that make this particularly notable. One is it's a very, very visual piece. It's all of these great sort of maps and artist renderings of what Manhattan would look like when you take away parking and you take away lanes of cars and you put in little street cafes and bike lanes and there are beautiful flowering trees everywhere. And the visuals are really important, especially for people who don't live in this world. So you can kind of see what this looks like. You know, as academics, we tend to write text and we make regression tables that nobody enjoys looking at. And our graphics are more to convey information than to persuade. But if we're trying to make an argument, I think the visualization is actually really important and that catches people's eyes. The other piece is that Manhattan is low-hanging fruit if you want to think about a place that can live without cars, because they have great public transit infrastructure and it's very dense and pretty small so people can get around easily without cars. But if we're going to have national conversations about transportation and its relationship to climate change and thinking about sort of how we how we can drive less if not go carless entirely at some point we have to move beyond manhattan and san francisco and downtown washington dc we have to start thinking about policies that make it feasible for people to drive less if they lived in the suburbs of cleveland and dallas and so i think if we want to do this kind of more holistically at some point you got to do the same kind of visualization for kind of you know suburbia usa and think about what that's really going to look like. Yeah, that's super interesting, Jay. I saw that piece too, and the visuals are amazing. Thanks for sharing. All right, Greg, what's your appendix this week? I love that article as well. And another piece of that is places like Manhattan and San Francisco and DC, et cetera, making it easier for folks to live there so that, because not every suburb of Phoenix, for example, will be able to be car light, let alone car free. But if more people are able to live where the built environment fosters that, that would be great. The similar kind of climate change uh, transportation theme, there's a, an article recently published in a Global Sustainability by, there's about a dozen, well, maybe eight authors on here. William Lamb is the, the first one. Uh, it's called Discourses of Climate Delay. It's a very short piece, and it identifies 12, the author's called Discourses of Essentially Dissembling. So uh, the four categories that they identify are disruptive change is not necessary, push non-transformative solutions, change will be disruptive, emphasize the downsides, it's not possible to mitigate climate change, so surrender, and someone else should take 
actions first or redirect responsibility. And then they break it down further. And they have a nice little chart on that. I think it's interesting. It, it has a little bit of a flavor of like how to push back on your, on your uncle at Thanksgiving to it. But I think that there are some other takeaways here. I mean, the first is that a lot of these are not kind of intrinsically problematic. It's really once you get into the weeds that they become problematic. So just as an example, one of them is appeal to social justice. So that's obviously not intrinsically problematic, but it, the point that the authors make is that it's folks who want to discourage uh, attention on a climate delay are, are kind of appropriating that angle. So I, I think my my first takeaway is just that the, the need for intellectual honesty and, and rigor in addressing hard problems and the need to kind of identify a goal first and then figure out what's necessary to to achieve it. So sort of a, a very basic point. And then the second piece that I think is really critical here is the role of government and collective action in facilitating individual action. And that's something the authors do a great job of bringing out in the paper. My favorite example on this is recycling. So here, you know, it's one thing to just encourage people to recycle. It's another to provide some kind of support. So bottle deposits, curbside pickup, you know, those structures make it a lot easier for individuals to be virtuous, depending on virtue alone, doesn't seem like a very wise policy. And that kind of links up to the, you know, if, if you start from the point that recycling is important, then you have to not just urge people to do it, but to build structures that make it likely that they will do it. Super interesting, Greg. Leah, what's your appendix today? All right. So in light of some work I'm doing and the civil disturbances we've seen this year in U.S. cities, I want to recommend an article by Emily Badger in the New York Times about the roots of gentrification from areas that saw decline during the civil disturbances in the 1960s. I think it's a fantastic article, not just because I'm quoted at the end, but because um, I think it, it just was a really lovely overview of sort of all the forces hitting these neighborhoods, both past and present, and how we can think about that and what it means for how we think about gentrification today. Um, and I'm going to tie that in with a documentary that's on my watch list maybe for this weekend called LA 92 to think about the long run effects of civil disturbance. That's great, Leah. I saw that article and I was so thrilled to see you quoted in it along with a number of other friends, but especially you. And I can't wait to see your upcoming research in the near future. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> in honor of our guest today, I would like to highlight one of my favorite papers of Leah's, published in 2019 in the Review of Economic Statistics, Leah's work with Bayard Lutz on the lasting imprint of LA's streetcar system on urban development within uh, Los Angeles. The paper's called Vestiges of Transit, Urban Persistence at a Micro Scale. So in this paper, Leah and Byron document the persistence of land use patterns following the obsolescence of streetcar lines in Los Angeles around the turn of the 20th century. And the main result is that parcels near historical streetcar lines are more densely developed today compared with similar parcels not near historical streetcar lines, despite streetcars having become obsolete about a century ago. So the paper then goes on to test a bunch of potential explanations for this remarkable persistence. There are many reasons why I like this paper, but I'll just highlight two. So one is which I think is like a trademark of Leah's work, which is a celebration of measurement <laughs> as an important contribution. I mean, the data work is incredible in this paper. They digitized the maps of the red and yellow car routes. 
they did all this work with census tract data. They digitized zoning policies at a parcel level for millions of parcels, both in 1922 and today. So I just think it's an excellent example of what measurement can do to tell us about the spatial economy. We can use measurement to analyze our economy. We can use data to improve our knowledge. We can use data to test theory. So I think that that's an important contribution. I think the second thing I want to highlight about what I like about this paper is the paper's result, which is to highlight two factors as really influencing the persistent effects of streetcars. And so the first is land use regulation. So basically policies or laws that dictate how you can develop certain parcels, right? And the second is agglomeration forces. That is private firms or households making independent decisions, decentralized decisions, but also perceiving or receiving some benefits from, you know, living or working close to other people. So ultimately in the paper, it's kind of hard to disentangle these two things. Uh, and I think the right answer is probably like a mix of, of both of these factors. But I, what I like about the result is that it shines a spotlight on what I think, what I presume it might be like an ongoing theme of this show, which is the relative role of law or policy and decentralized decision-making, the way that our cities look and the way they're organized and the spatial structure of the economy. I think that that's an important thing that comes out of this paper that I think is an important research agenda for people going forward. It's just to think for people who are interested in cities and how they look, think about both of these kinds of factors. So that's my appendix for this week. And if I can jump in and tie that to Liga's paper today, I think the big takeaway is that 100 years ago, we should have built a whole lot more streetcars so that we could have densely developed parcels and that we did the big construction, the sort of heavy lifting when costs were cheap. Very good. All right. Thank you, Leah. Thank you guys for having me. It was a tons of fun. Thank you for listening to today's show. Densely Speaking is produced by Skylar Pals. Check the show notes for links to articles discussed on today's show. And let us know what you think on Twitter. Jenny is at Jenny underscore Schutz. Greg is at Greg underscore Shill. And I am at Jeff R. Lin. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts. But please take a second to rate the show as well. Finally, the views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.